0: The TV fans are taking over. This is across the airwaves. Hi everyone, and welcome to you. Another. Episode. Across the Airways. The podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions got the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt your host. Ken With Me is a guy who wants those mother-freaking snakes off cough his mother-freaking plane. Ken With Me is a guy who I just cannot believe has put up with me for 200 episodes of this show. Can With Me is the quads to my Sherlock. Ken With Me is a guy who is into all the cosplay that goes on on the Comic-Con floor. And of course, With Me is the guy who stopped a nuclear bomb from going off in New York City with absolutely no idea what he was doing. Get with me is a guy who knows not to fall out of helicopters But wearing a Santa suit. Get with me is a guy who is always ready with a grenade. Get with me is a guy who plays a really mean axe guitar. My co-host and Jukebox Hero. Get with me is a guy who has not been replaced by a Zygon. Ken with me is a guy who thinks it was about time for heroes to wrap itself up. Ken with me is a guy who is shocked to discover that his former master is Dark Vader. Ken with me is a guy who has a hero port-a-potty thanks to the Equinox get with me because a guy who just wants to believe my co-host
1: hey everybody it's nico and welcome to across the airwaves on this week's episode we continue the spring 2017 tv season with an episode of walking dead star wars rebels and michael and tim's review of supernatural along with a new netflix amazon and non-traditional networks recommendation in the streaming section but before all of that we're going to kick things off with the news with nico section (music) how planet earth 2 goes bigger and smaller than ever before. The second installment of BBC's most iconic and beloved nature docu-series premiered stateside in a huge simulcast across BBC America, Sundance, and AMC on Saturday, February 18th at 9 p.m. The series takes a different approach than its initial run of episodes. Producers were able to once again change how we look at and understand our natural world. What is different about series 2? Perspective. Executive producer Elizabeth White explains. The number one one rule is be on the animal's eye level. If you want to be in their world, you have to be down on their level. In some places, like when we shot the Christmas Island Crabs, that involved digging up bits of trench and putting the camera right down so you can be right down on their eye level. Because the moment you're off their eye level, you're not in their world. The difference was also explained during the 2017 Television Critics Association Winter Press Tour, and says that it's the technology. The first one had almost a godlike perspective perspective using giant stabilized camera mounts. What we did was take that technology and miniaturize it so people could experience it as the animals do. It's only possible through this micro technology, And the tech is impressive. Several types of cameras and camera tricks varied the perspective throughout the series. Even drones were used for traditional middle ground work so that you can get that sense of what it means to be a monkey and the result of these episodes evoke the same spectacle and large emotional feelings the original series did as an audience member you are more invested and more engaged in with the complementary perspective that the smaller focal points add to planet earth 2's enormity without it planet earth would feel preachy rather than a significant time capsule a love letter to the natural world around us that we so desperately need to contextualize our place in the world planet earth 2 now airs on saturdays across multiple networks including BBC America, AMC, and Sundance. Make sure you go and watch it. Keanu Reeves spills details on Bill & Ted 3. They are Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan, and together they are Wild Stallions. As foretold in the two Bill & Ted movies, everyone's favorite pair of time-traveling dimwits are destined to change the world with their music. But they haven't done it yet, and it's been 26 years since the last sequel. But thanks to the success of John Wick 2, Keanu Reeves is writing another Hollywood comeback, and that means even more potential for Bill & Ted 3. While promoting John Wick 2 on the Graham Norton show Reeves said that the script has already been written and it would follow up on the fact that Bill and Ted still haven't lived up to their potential basically they're supposed to write a song to save the world and they haven't done that the pressure of having to save the world their marriages are falling apart their kids are kind of mad at them and then someone comes from the future and tells them that if they don't write the song it's not just the world it's the universe so they have to save the universe because time is breaking apart sadly Bill and Ted's mentor Rufus can't be the one that comes back from the future because the great George Carlin passed away a few years ago, but we could see William Sadler return as the Grim Reaper, and that would be cool. You know, I'm actually kind of excited to see where this film goes, and I do hope it gets made. I'll keep you guys up to date as more details become available archer season 8 trailer transports the game to noir themed dreamland archer is turning back the clocks for its presumed third to last season along with the series move to fxx for season 8 the animated comedy is also shifting its setting to 1940s los angeles a world full of machine guns old-timey hats and in lana's case really bad jokes if you're wondering how all of this is possible considering the show's titled spy appeared to die at the end of season 7 the answer lies in this season's theme dreamland that's right people this is all presumably a coma dream archer's new season kicks off wednesday april 5th at 10 9 central on fxx Rufio is kickstarting a Hook prequel about Rufio. We've heard the story of Peter Pan told quite a bit. From live action films to musicals to cartoons, I think it's safe to say we know Peter's story pretty darn well. While the tale of the boy who never grew up is a fun and magical one, it's time we got a new story from Neverland, don't you think? Actor Dante Bosco certainly thinks so. While Bosco's name might not immediately ring a bell for you, you most certainly recognize him at first glance. Yep, Bosco was the actor who brought Rufio, one of the coolest and most badass lost boys in all of Neverland, to life. It's been decades since we first were introduced to him in the 1991 film Hook, and Bosco thinks it's about time that we got a look at Rufio's backstory. As Entertainment Weekly reports, he started a Kickstarter to tell Rufio's story. The film will be called Bangerang, because seriously, what else could a Rufio movie ever be called? The story will follow a young boy named Rufus and his friends as they escape an unhappy life in a foster home, find their happy thoughts, and start their amazing adventures in neverland we'll see how rufus becomes rufio and how he becomes the pan after peter leaves we'll learn what exactly Bangerang means and yes we'll even see how he lands on that iconic hairstyle bosco's initial goal is to raise thirty thousand to produce this as a short film however if he is able to raise 200 000 or more he'll turn rufio's origin story into a feature-length film i don't know about you guys but i would love a feature-length adventure through neverland with rufio though Bosco won't be playing rufio again he will still be looking out for the iconic character as the executive producer on the film so if you want to help this film become a reality head on over to the kickstarter page you'll be able to see info on the entire crew you'll see the perks that you get by backing the project like joining rufio's army and you can even check out casting call info follow the link in the acc feed over to the nerdist site for all the details and follow the kickstarter link from their site to fund the project and that's the news with nico for this week all right with that we're We're going to jump right into the reviews this week as we're going to kick off this episode with the Walking Dead episode entitled New Best Friends. On the search for a missing Alexandrian, Rick and his group encounter a mysterious collective whose inhabitants are unlike any they have come across. As is traditionally the case in this series, the second episode back from hiatus, or to kick off a season, slows the action down and works to either set up the story for the rest of the season or work on character development, which this episode did both. Last week in the mid-season premiere, we saw Rick and company attempting to form alliances against the saviors by convincing the hilltop to join them, and then meeting and attempting to do the same with the kingdom, following by the junkyard people and essentially that is what i believe the majority of this season will consist of finding new communities and convincing them to join the war against the saviors to ultimately kick off that said war in the season finale and then continue it into next season as i mentioned in the final seconds of last week's episode rick and his companions are surrounded by the junkyard people and this week's episode continued that arc with rick meeting the leader a weird woman named jadis and rick attempting to convince her and her people to join their fight against the saviors of course rick is immediately forced to prove himself in a gladiatorial combat against a walker decked out like the mouth of Sauron complete with steel spike studded helmet shielding his undead brain his name's Wilson says Jadis an obvious reference to the title character in Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise a disfigured musician who wears a similar chrome dome after triumphing over that creature with little help from Michonne of course Rick makes a deal to get his new buddies guns in exchange for their help in the coming war against Negan where those guns are going to come from from and how they're going to get them are details michonne details it's worth noting that this new community which looks walks and even talks an awful lot like an alien race on star trek seriously i I get this this could all take place in the future but not that distant of a future and also these are not part of robert kirksman comic books so all bets are off as far as how trustworthy these people are and whether or not we can trust that they'll actually be there in the war against the saviors but i do have to ask this junkyard people Did their mannerisms and the way they all talk seem off to anyone else? Like maybe living in a junkyard for years on end with little to no outside contact caused some serious brain damage or something? Or were they inbred rednecks that lived in the junkyard before the zombies came anyway and they're just still that way? I don't know. Did this seem weird to anyone else or was it just me? Anyway, moving on. Elsewhere, Daryl seemed to be making a new friend in Richard, going so far as to almost force the issue with the saviors and the kingdom until he realized that Richard. Richard had set it up to sacrifice Carol in order to force King Ezekiel's hand and Daryl obviously flipped out and beat Richard's ass and so instead of having a new friend in the fight Daryl sets out on his own and checks up on his own friend. Seemingly content living a life of peace albeit at the cost of a community Carol has no time for visitors especially when King Ezekiel and his knights come calling even with Cobbler but she loses her composure upon seeing Daryl and hugs him and invites him in for dinner The Carol and Daryl dynamic is one of the show's more popular ones and it's easy to see why when she breaks down in tears upon explaining to him why she left she's never been better at articulating her feelings not with morgan not with ezekiel as she is when she tells him she would have kept killing to protect the people who she cared about until there was nothing left of her when daryl initiates the conversation by simply asking why'd you go he sounds like a broken child reuniting with a neglectful mother his feelings of abandonment are more heartbreaking than any abuse we've watched him suffer this season at the hands of the saviors though daryl winds up leaving carol in the kingdom and heading off for the hilltop the end of the episode this week's episode ends with another newly formed friendship between daryl and morgan who identifies with the bowman when he learns he spared carol the knowledge of her friend's deaths that friendship should soon help ally the kingdom with alexandria with hilltop and with the junkyard people maybe even more groups as well this new friendship also resulted in two major plot points daryl got a crossbow back at morgan's suggestion. suggestion to Richard, and Morgan lost his easement stick. I think both of these plot developments will have obvious season long implications. Obviously an armed Daryl with his favored weapon is much more likely to stay safe and free of the saviors grasp and the crossbow allows for much more stealth something that that assault rifle Daryl's other weapon he got from Richard does not Eastman's stick means everything to Morgan as well and, and means probably that it's theft by the saviors is going to be the the thing that plays a part in Morgan finally deciding to join the the overall fight against the saviors though as Gabriel points out to Rick at the end of the episode A price will have to be paid in that fight before final victory can be achieved. The question now becomes, who will wind up paying it? And that's where I'm going to leave off for this week's episode. Next, we're going to move into Star Wars Rebels with the return episode from a short hiatus entitled Legacy of Mandalore. Hoping to get her family to help the rebels, Sabine returns home with Kanan and Ezra and finds herself embroiled in her family's power struggle for Mandalore. Well I've got to say this was an eventful episode to say the least. After returning from a few week hiatus in late January and early February, Star Wars Rebels came back with a return to Mandalore and specifically a return for Sabine to her ancestral home. She left as a child running away from her problems, the Empire, and the scandal of being marked a traitor to Mandalore as a whole, designing a weapon that was later used by the Empire to force Mandalore to submit to Imperial rule. Needless to say she was not welcomed home with open arms. In fact her mother sold the Jedi to to Gar Saxon in exchange for Sabine's safety and a pardon. Lucky for her mother, Sabine is not the child who ran away from home. And when Gar Saxon inevitably betrayed Clan Ren, Sabine was there to battle and ultimately defeat him in single combat in a great scene where she fought with Ezra's lightsaber against Gar Saxon, who had the dark saber. When Sabine's mother surrendered it earlier as part of the ransom to supposedly save Sabine, even if the Sabine sparing his life only to be almost shot in the back until someone else time her mother shoots him first scene was completely cliched it was still a great story and progression for the character of Sabine finally giving us a whole heaping helping of the backstory Dan and I had been clamoring for from the very first episode about Sabine's life before joining the rebels and the ghost crew this alone was a momentous moment in the episode and would have made it a memorable one all by itself but the ending all but solidified this episode as one of the most important of the entire season and possibly the series so far after sort of reconciling the with her family and defeating Gar Saxon, Sabine made a choice. She decided to remain with her family to work on freeing Mandalore from the empire's grasp, rather than return to the ghost with Kanan and Ezra. Given that the ghost crew has been Sabine's family for as long as we've known her, it's a significant change but what does it mean for the rest of the season and possibly series? It feels like the writers are pursuing a much larger arc with Sabine in this decision. The Mandalorian leader Gar Saxon is gone. It means the Empire is going to come for Mandalore and they have to be ready. We all know that Sabine couldn't walk away from that. This story speaks to a bigger galaxy than just the Rebels and the budding Alliance. It's not like the Empire is just a problem the crew of the Ghost has. Sabine has gotten involved and now she has to be accountable for some of these big problems that have occurred as a result of her returning to Mandalore. I have always been fascinated by the Mandalorians ever since Boba Fett showed up in Empire Strikes Back and even more so in Return of the Jedi. When we first started watching Clone Wars, Dan and I never knew how how much mandalore would play a role in that series though we love discussing it every time it did and dave filoni has said he never knew how much it would invade his stories but it is just so rich in story and the fans love the lore so much he keeps finding ways to bring it back both during clone wars and now here on rebels while the issue of mandalore won't be resolved in an episode or two the natural question becomes whether sabine will be back and if she is when she's not a part of the core group of the ghost anymore So what does that mean for the series as a whole will we get split focused episodes where some episodes focus on the rebels and the ghosts and other episodes stick with sabine and the mandalorians because that's what i hope i hope that because sabine made this decision that we don't lose out on her story on the mandalorian story as well until they decide to bring it all back together and bring it back to the rebels as a whole story and mandalor decides to join the rebellion i hope we get consistent episodes showing sabine either leading her people or Finding that leader who can lead the Mandalorians. Sabine is such a beloved character, both on this show and in the wider fandom, that I can't imagine her not returning to the main story eventually. But when and for how long will she remain away from the Ghost? That I can't even begin to speculate. It's true that Sabine adds a lot of life to the Ghost team, and she brings color to the ship, literally and figuratively. The Ghost won't be the same without Sabine. She really can't be replaced, and I really hope that the show and crew don't attempt to try i do really hope we get those mandalorian focused episodes i was talking about and sabine continues to be an important part of the series while she's fighting the good fight on mandalore i hope that it's not she just goes off and is forgotten until it's time to bring her back that would be a a massive shame all right with that we're going to move on to michael and tim's supernatural review of the episode entitled stuck in the middle with you
2: Hey everyone, Michael J. Petty here. Welcome back to the Supernatural segment of the Across Area Podcast, where we're talking about Supernatural Season 12, Episode 12, entitled Stuck in the Middle with You. With me today is my friend and fellow Supernatural mythology lover, Tim Cook. Tim. How's it going? It's going well. How are you?
3: <laughs> Doing well. This was one of those episodes that isn't necessarily part of the uh, traditional beginning of the season, mid-season, and end-season, that I think is going to be essential and extremely important in coming season, so I can't wait to talk about it.
2: I completely agree. You know, guys, on this week's Supernatural, brothers Mary, Castiel, and newcomer Wally take on a new type of demon. Well, actually, an old type. The first type of demon we've seen on the series Prince of Hell. Much like as time goes by, it turned supernatural mythology upside down in a good way back in season 8 by introducing us to Henry Winchester, Abaddon, Meta Letters, and the Knights of Hell, as well as even Arcane's point. This week's Stuck in the Middle with You did something very similar by introducing us to Ramiel Prince of Hell. Now, before we get into specifics of this week's episode, let's recap. We learned that Azazel, the yellow eyed demon in the verse two seasons and the original big bad of supernatural the one who killed mary and made sam one of his special children was actually a prince of hell the princes of hell are a small group of demons created by lucifer specifically after he created lilith to be his generals for his demonic armies the same army as azazel attempted to create with his special children back first two seasons now in the book of enoch ramiel like ziel is one of the fallen watchers who came to earth and the women to create nephilim offspring so very similar to what azazel did by giving the special trill his blood making them at least a part of the other two princes of hell that we have yet to meet, and who I believe will meet sooner than later, are Dagon, Asmodeus. Now, Asmodeus was called King of the deep Jewish chanical Book of Tobit, while Dagon is the most popular of Philistine demon gods. Like gods or archangels, Satan's four princes seem to have their own agenda, but now that the Winchesters have killed two of them, not just one in this episode, but two, I'm starting to wonder when the other two will come after Sam for revenge. Tim, what are your thoughts on the Patella and this episode's other new additions to supernatural mythology? Does it live up to previous changes that changed it all up, like Season Four's Lazarus rising by introducing us to full-on angels or season eights as time goes by
3: well i mean there is so much that's happening with just this and the first thing i'd like to bring up is that just like you know in season four and season eight we got a bit of a twist this week so we find we we know that there are the knights of hell which is something that abaddon was and that they are very very hard to kill now we know there are princes of hell and there's only four of them and they are very hard to kill now we've also been introduced to cain who is is technically a demon, but Lilith was still the first demon created by Lucifer. I guess Cain gave up his soul and was, of course, has the mark of Cain now. Or, when we met him, he did. So, it's interesting because not only have we, we met a lot of people who are on the top tier of hell, in a way, but we find out that so, the order, as far as we've been able to understand it, was Lucifer, the princes of hell, and then we have the knights of hell, and we also have Crowley, who is the lord of the crossroads now after the knights of hell or after the princes of hell i guess were the ones to take power after should anything happen to lucifer and azazel we find out in this one that uh, asmodeus is the next or not asmodeus the one we meet in this one is the next one to take power in hell and he winds up turning that down and we'll get more into that discussion a little bit later but we find out that there's a lot to the the hierarchy of hell that that we haven't known about before and that kind of is slowly revealed over time and i think you're right in saying that these are meant to be lucifer's kind of switch on the archangels there's four archangels we now found out there's four princes of hell and this episode reveals that azazel was the most fanatic of them um and one of the other things i'd like to bring up is that we cain he he ran off to go live a simple human life too and now we find out that three out of the four princes of hell have done the same so i i wonder if there's a question to be asked here as why are all these top level lieutenants and top level leaders of lucifer's satanic army running off to just live in 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 you know for for this guy's sake fish and he talks a little bit about the other two saying one of them has their toys and the other has stuff to occupy his time too so whatever they're doing they seem to be living a simple life and we saw kane doing something extremely similar and they did give kane's rationale is that he met someone who abaddon later kind of uh, screwed that up for kane but it's definitely interesting that we're getting Getting this higher level of the demon hierarchy in in Supernatural. So it's definitely interesting and it answers uh, an age-old question we've had. You know, we've seen so many demonic eye colors. We know that Crossroads demon has red because Crowley has red eyes. We know that Lilith had white. We know that Azazel had yellow. So now we know why Azazel had yellow ones. We know why Crowley has red ones, or at least, I mean, we assume that it's because he's a Crossroads demon. And we know that Lilith... Being the very first demon, I think, is a good indicator as to why she had white eyes. Also, Alistair
2: so, has white eyes, or had white eyes.
3: That is true. He did, too. So, I mean, maybe there's still a question to be asked why they had white eyes, but we're getting some revelation here over why demons have certain eye colors. So, I like getting more mythology about Hell. I think we got a lot of mythology about Heaven, about the Archangels in some earlier seasons, especially season 6, when Cass was going up against Raphael, and it'll definitely be interesting, and I think we can definitely expect to see the other two popping up somewhere later down the road and and, and we kind of get maybe another clue as to what's going to happen in some further seasons.
2: Tim, Arthurio Crowley killing Mary is, is very, very slowly being destroyed but what if another yellow-eyed demon decides to kill her? Hey,
3: I would be okay with that. I mean, hey, <laughs> yellow-eyed demons have a, have a history of killing family members so maybe that would be, I mean, hey, maybe that would work almost even better than it being Lucifer himself if, if one of the princes of hell did it i mean <laughs> you know dad and mom have been taken by the yellow by azazel and uh, technically sam was taken by azazel too they were all killed because of him so um it would definitely be interesting it would definitely be interesting if a prince of hell was to to reclaim mary now the
2: only thing that is kind of weird to me about the way demons interact at this point and the way that they're defeated i should say at this point is we know that Prince of hell can be killed by the cult we know that they can be killed by the lance of michael which is now a destroyed anyway, so that doesn't matter. More. But we know that Angel Blades can't kill them, which seems odd, and the Demon Knight can't kill, which, go figure. However, the Demon Knight could kill Lilith and Alistair, Lilith being first of all the demons, and only the first blade could kill a Knight of Hell. So, what makes certain Demon classes impervious to certain weapons? What makes other Demon classes impervious to other weapons? It doesn't, because even Knights of Hell, they just have black eyes. They're just black eyed demons. I mean, they're stronger than most black eyed, but they just have black eyes. That's it. So, I, I, I keep wondering, hey, how are they gonna defeat another pal without full My answer is probably they won't. and because they're gonna need it back, obviously. That's why it's been reintroduced, but we'll talk about that again later. And two, what makes a white eye why can a white eyed demon who has really at this point been the most powerful demon we've really encountered to a point, except for maybe Knights of Hell, why can they be killed by the knife, but other demons can't kill them? Mm-hmm. I don't know.
3: Well and and I think there's two questions to be asked here. And and because your supernatural knowledge is much more expansive than mine, uh hopefully you know the answers to these questions but they said specifically in this episode only five things in all of existence can't be killed by the cult so do we know what all five of those are and then the other question is, is do you remember what or never mind I actually remember now it was cast super juiced from all the, the souls and all the souls from purgatory that was able to destroy Raphael but the question is Is it almost seems like archangels were they, they were killed in a simpler way than knights of hell and princes of hell are able yeah. to be killed. But I think it would be good for us to be able to remember what the five things in all of creations that, that can't be killed by the cult are.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. And you're right, archangels seem to be able to kill these However, we do need to remember that there is a distinction with archangels between an angel blade and an archangel. That's very important because archangels cannot be killed by a regular angel blade. It has to be an archangel in which, mm-hmm. of which there are board. So, it's still very hard to kill them because, like, the cult can't kill them. The cult can't kill archangels. That's one of the vibes. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that because Sam and Dean tried to kill Lucifer, with Colt and it didn't work. He got right back up, and he was just kind of pissed. <laughs> <Which I> understand. <laughs> However, the cult can kill a prince of hell, as we know by killing Azazel. Yep. So we know that the Colt can essentially kill any type of demon. Can it kill a knight of hell? We don't know, because the Colt was not in Winchester's possession during Seasons 8, 9, or eight, 10. So we don't actually know if the cult could kill a knight of hell. I'm going to assume, yes, it can. So I'm going to assume that the cult can kill any of here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can't kill archangels can probably kill Rigel It can't kill death because the only thing that can kill death was his Sigh mm-hmm. Probably cannot kill God or Amara so it cannot kill uh, omniscient beings and it's a, it's possible that it can't kill Leviathans although again they didn't have cult time, so we don't really know the answer to that. Yep. But we know those three for sure omniscient beings like God or Amara Archangels and death.
3: Death. So that's four out of the five so there's one other thing that in all of creation it can't kill. Maybe we'll find that out later. Who knows? The cult is something that hasn't been on the table in a long time but, you know, we'll get into that a little bit but it'll be interesting to see how that plays into it later too.
2: Definitely. Now, backtracking just, I think it's worth mentioning that this week's episode did something totally different than any normal Supernatural episode in terms of its episode structure. This is something that as a filmmaker myself I'm kind of geeky out about. In fact <laughs> Supernatural was very Quentin Tarantino in the way that they told the story specifically referencing Pulp Fiction's story structure. Now, Tim, you already know this but I am personally not a Tarantino fan. Dude, graphic and mature content that he feels the need to shove into otherwise great films and down our audience's throats. But I love the way that this episode was done. It kept me very interested and invested the entire time. Terminator Sarah Connor Chronicles did an episode like this in their second season, and to this day, it is still one of the best episodes of that series. And while I don't know if this episode of Supernatural makes it into the top 10, I think its style of storytelling certainly puts it up there as one of the most unique. Tim, what were your thoughts on how the story was told this week? Would you like it more if I told you that the Trickster himself, Richard Spate Jr., actually directed this week's episode?
3: Well, I think it's really cool that Richard was the one who directed this episode. Some of his episodes in the early seasons are my absolute favorite. In fact, when we when we see the Trickster or or who we later find out as Gabriel, uh, those, are, those are actually some of my absolute favorite episodes. And almost all the ones he appears in in the early seasons are in my top ten list. Granted, maybe one or two. So So I love the actor, love the character he plays on Supernatural, and it's good to see that he's getting a directing role in Supernatural, because you're right, this is one of the most unique episodes in terms of how they styled it that we've seen so far in the series. And, you know, I I would agree with you, I'm not a huge Tarantino fan either, and in fact, when he does this in movies, I usually don't like the way he structures them in this way, where they jump around a lot, and they tell the story in a bunch of different, odd ways. But the thing I can say about it is that in terms of it being for one episode of Supernatural I think it was an awesome idea especially an episode that there's a lot of different aspects to they want to talk about you know Mary and the Man of Letters they want to talk about Sam and Dean coming to kill this demon they want to give a little bit of backstory on Azazel they want to show what's going on with Crowley I mean we we even get you know a a little bit for cast too although I think maybe my favorite part of this entire episode was the Mama Mary part so I, I like the style in terms of this week and I would also like to point out that they were just I mean the way they did this episode there were also a fair amount of references I'm, I'm pretty sure Mama Mary is a reference but I know for sure um, you can look at uh, Mr. Crowley and of course you have Ozzy and his song Mr. Crowley so when they put the title up for Mr. Crowley uh, that's definitely what I was thinking of uh, when they put his title up there and it was definitely a unique way of doing the episode I like that they did it once I think it was a cool thing to do once I don't know that they should do it again though <laughs> Yeah, no,
2: that's that's definitely fair. I think if they were to do it again, they would have to have a very specific reason for doing yep. it. Um, but yeah, no, I think Mother Mary was just a reference to, like, because that's often what Catholicism would call her. Um, yeah, no, I love title card. Well, I thought that was I thought that was good. Yeah, but we've been talking a lot lately about Cassio, his role in the show, and the choices that he seems to make. And it seems like he's been given much more of a spotlight this season. And I'm wondering if that's intentional some some Way intentional. This episode has me really scared. Had me really scared. Albeit briefly, after he was stabbed the Lance of Michael, that Cass would not survive this way. The way that he, the episode was promoted and teased, and then getting into the actual episode itself with the way the story was told, as we already talked about, pointed to Cassiel either dying by the end or becoming terminal. Thankfully, Crowley came in and saved the day by breaking, warding on the lens, freeing Castiel from the curse he was under. Tim, were you at all worried that we were going to lose our favorite Wounded Angel this week? On another note, did you enjoy the flashback time between season 5 and 6 when Mr. Crowley gained his title, King of Hell?
3: Mm-hmm. Um, well, <laughs> unfortunately, because this isn't a mid-season, the beginning of the season or the finale episodes, I wasn't too concerned. Concerned about Cast? <laughs> um, fair I fair don't. <laughs> I don't think they'd kill him on an off-color week like this, or at least I sure as heck hope they wouldn't. But you're right; they haven't putting a spotlight on Cast that we haven't seen in a long time, and that begs the question: Why? I mean, Misha Collins as an actor has become a pretty core tenant of the Supernatural team in terms of when they go, you know, to Comic Con or when they do stuff for the show outside of the show, and he has become a main cast member and essential part of the Supernatural. Based in the supernatural group, as we see it, so the question becomes: Is like what reaction happens if something happens to Cass? And I mean, killing Cass. I mean, that that's pulling out a really big punch. And the other thing is, is that you know we've seen God intervene to save Cass's life before. And now that God and Amara are kind of out of the picture, I doubt that that will happen again. But. It's interesting to note that, that Cass has been saved before by God, and that we've seen Cass a lot more this season, so. Maybe that's an issue of concern. I wonder if they'd be willing to kill off basically their third main cast character. So, it'd be interesting. I mean, I don't know if I would be all for it. I guess it would be a lot about how the show handled it and the point they were trying to make with Cass's death uh, would very much determine whether or not I was on board. Um, If they're doing it solely for shock value, I would hate that. But if they're doing it to really drive home a point or if they're doing it to really build up like maybe Crowley is a bad guy again that he kills Cass, I think that'd be Something that would be beneficial for the show moving forward. I mean, nothing drives the plot quite like a dead character. So it would be how they handled anything that happened to Cass. But on the flip side of that, it's very interesting to see the flashback between season five and six for Crowley. I mean, we never we we always thought that that Crowley kind of was positioning himself at the end of season five to have a lot of power. I mean, he wanted Lucifer gone. It made a lot of sense that he took up the title of uh, Prince of Hell or King of hell not prince of hell sorry king of hell so it it was kind of one of those questions that we never got an answer to but i don't know that a lot of people were asking i mean i I was really glad to get that flashback but it's interesting to see that crowley even for a moment didn't automatically assume that role i mean with all the kind of post-season five demonic bad guys they've been adding again like princes of hell or or knights of hell it begs the question out of all those people why crowley got king of hell and i guess it's just because a, a couple of other people turn down the job Uh, of course with a deal they turn down the job which is almost fitting that Crowley gets to be the king of hell based off of a deal considering he's the king of the Mm crossroads. but it's interesting to note that Crowley was willing to give up or was willing to surrender the throne and was was kind of going there with the intention of giving the throne over to someone else so that was an interesting revelation this week I don't think it changes much about Crowley as a character but it was definitely interesting to note that Crowley may Maybe in season five wasn't the power-hungry guy we thought he was. He was honestly just trying to get rid of Lucifer for him and demonkind's good, I guess, which is odd.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. It, I mean, it was a very interesting way to bring about that revelation. In fact, there's actually continuity about scene, 2 with Crowley actually having facial hair. Crowley does not have facial hair in the series until season seven when he's on the run from Leviathan. That is
3: true. So,
2: <laughs> so I caught it, Super Nash. Don't make
3: that mistake again. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but, uh, but no, I I agree, and I'm I'm also kind Kind of hopeful that we don't lose Castiel after this season, but I also think that uh, it is definitely a possibility with Misha Collins maybe wanting to move on with his career. But even beyond that, the way that they've been positioning Castiel, as you've already mentioned, as I've mentioned, has has me a little on the edge. But mm-hmm. but we'll see. I mean, it could be an interesting way to go back to form, uh, like this form of the first three seasons, where demons are the main focus, with you know Crowley surviving and Cass dying could be a very interesting way to do that. But I just I don't know. We mm-hmm. time will tell. We will see. Right? I mean,
3: I think we both would like to see a return to demons being the big bad I mean we both praised the episode this season where we saw a crossroads demon able to torment Sam Dean Mama Winchester and a bunch of other hunters all at the same time and we really praise the use of of a crossroads demon in that episode yeah and I think with the way they have used demons especially in seasons you know three four and five and even one and two to a point I mean we have seen a lot of very interesting stuff with demons, and I know that both of us would like a return to that. Definitely, but moving on from that, <clears throat> there
2: are quite a few revelations this week, the Crowley one we've already mentioned, but let's discuss the puffy and possibly most important one of all, the British Men of Letters have Colt. Now, the last time the Winchesters were in possession of the Colt, Dean dropped it back in the 1800s, when he and Sam went back in time to work with Samuel Colt to kill a phoenix so that they could use its ashes to kill Eve. They did win, by the way. But that seems like <laughs> forever ago. Man, I, I actually forgot where the Colt was because it's been sold. Since then, they've relied heavily on their angel blades and ruby's knife to kill whatever got in their way now mary winchester who's working with british of letters has handed it over to arthur catch i'm not sure why the british of letters need, really need this weapon other than it could kill all but five things and creations which we've already talked about mm-hmm. but clearly whatever they have planned for america is going to shake things up one way or another tim why do you think the british of letters need what are they going to do with it? also when are sam and dean going to find out what their dear old mother mary
3: has been up to mm-hmm. well one of the things i've been saying especially this season is if you watch the beginning of the episode when they do the then and the now stuff there's always usually a line or two that's very important and one of the lines that was brought up in the then part of this week's recap for previous seasons was a British men of letters saying imagine a world without monsters and I think that's extremely critical it goes back to their philosophy of leave no loose ends it's what they do in Britain they leave zero loose ends and they bag and tag everything the second they get there and we saw this week what the danger of that philosophy is because we saw a prince of hell there are three of them out there one of them of course we know has an interest in lucifer's or rosemary's baby over there but we also know that that all three of them for a really long time now have just wanted to be left alone and we saw the danger of shaking the nest this week i mean we almost lost Cass and sam and dean surely would have died if, if the spear of michael hadn't been, been brought to the forefront in this episode which i on a side note, it's really tragic that it was broken in this episode. Cause I think that could have been uh, a cool piece of uh, yeah. a, a cool artifact to have had around, but that's going on a tangent that we don't need to. <laughs> but the point I'm trying to make here is that, you know, there, there is a good point to leaving the these princes of hell alone. They're extremely powerful. We saw that with Azazel. We saw that this week. I mean, this is something that can throw the current king of hell through a building like No Tomorrow, and he made it look easy. So, these are, are creatures that they, they don't want to be poking the beehive on, but that we know someone like the British Men of Letters that, because of their philosophy, they would be in direct opposition to these two. So, it, it's very interesting, and positive possibly part of the reason that Arthur Ketch wanted the cult. It's interesting that they are on a hunt to find the cult, and maybe even more interesting that that old Mother Mary over here handed them the Colt. You know, I, I would hope that she's been caught up on what happened with Azazel and the use of the cult in what, in, in taking out Azazel. So it seems like, even to the average bystander who, who knows about the events that have gone on in Supernatural, that Sam and Dean would be the best people to have the cult in their their possession, that they should have the cult in their possession. right? And so it's interesting that Mary went out of her way to hand it over to the British Men of Letters and it's also interesting that she didn't reveal the fact that she had it when she had the opportunity to present it because it sounded like that would have been a way for them to make it out of the situation. They'd hand it over the cult. We don't know if that's true or not. Demons lie. But delivering the cult to the Men of Letters seemed to be a very high priority for her this week so far as to hide it from Sam and Dean and to hide it from Cass because she knew that they didn't want to work with the men of letters and and i mean it throws some some shadow onto mary this week for sure you know i like that we have the cult back in the plot now that that was a big device in the earlier seasons and i think the cult is, is really interesting and it's a it's a really cool thing but definitely the way mary handled things this week would not have been it will not be productive uh, i think we can safely say that 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 the men of letters having this cult is not necessarily a good thing. So, it'll be interesting to see how that plays in.
2: Well, and I think you're right when you say, look at the look at the previously on, because y- you're right, they do want to wipe out all monsters. They want to get rid of all these things. So, I almost wonder if they want Colt so that they can study it and mass produce
3: it. Yeah. I mean, we know Samuel Colt was able to make the thing in the first place. So, I mean, I guess the philosophy would consist if he made it once, someone else could, could make it again. We know there was a limited amount of bullets and there's a reason Sam and Dean went back and time to meet with Samuel Colt, but man, yeah, it definitely would give us an interesting thing if they started being mass-produced. That that would be, uh, th- that seems like something the Men of Letters would try. And, I mean, we also saw other Men of Letters technology in this episode, so you know, who knows? So, so why they wouldn't they, they want, want that? Exactly. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, that being said, uh, we're gonna move into our last point real quick, So we're going a little long today, but that's okay, because mm-hmm. there's a lot to talk about. Lastly, as Crowley sits back on his throne looking over his kingdom, a small, accusing voice starts to whisper out, dear, and as it turns out, Sam did send Lucifer back to hell at the end of the mid-season alley, where he's now changed as a dog under Crowley, and, and seems to already be becoming a thorn in his side. On the bright side, it's Mark Pellegrino playing the devil once again, so that's, Tim, it looks like Lucifer isn't actually out of account, like I thought he might be, and between that and Crowley sticking his neck out for the Winchesters again week, I'm starting to lose faith in our season 13 predictions and hopes, but, you know, I think about this, think about this, this is a new one. What if Lucifer gets free from hell again, finds Kelly Klein, and gets his Nephilim baby, and then... And joins up with the other two princes of hell to restart what he and his Azel started all those years ago, with the princes creating more special children be under Satan's own son or daughter, thereby ushering in the apocalypse once more and anew, without the angels, without Michael, without any of it. We know that Lucifer was sick of a lot of that stuff earlier the season, but the power of the President of the United States was intoxicating. Tim, what do you think? Is this theory too far out there, or is there actually any merit? Where could the British Men of Letters fit into this?
3: Well, you know, something I'd like to bring up is, and again, it it was just one line in the episode but it's one of those things where you know when, when we talk about this on a podcast it's one of those things that popped out to me and that I wanted to bring up was the line where he's talking about the other princes of hell and he says that the female one I can't remember which one she Dagon is. Dagon you're right that Dagon is interested in the Nephilim he doesn't care he knows about it he doesn't care but his sister Dagon is interested in it so maybe what we're gonna see is that Dagon has actually found her and is, and is kind of taking care of the child and maybe she's going to pick up the project where Azazel left off. That might, I mean, so I, I agree with that part of the theory. I don't know if Lucifer even needs to be around for that, if he needs to get out of the cage for that because it seems like we have a perfect avenue in a prince of hell to kind of carry on that goal of this demonic super army and maybe part of her goal in creating this demonic super army and having the child of Lucifer around is to help spring Lucifer from his cage for a third time so apparently i mean when we we've seen him be sprung twice now from his cage and and we've seen him be shot back in with the egg in the mid-season but maybe all of this is going to be very re- reminiscent of season four and five where we have a you know an apocalypse style couple of seasons and lucifer's kind of at the forefront of that and perhaps his child is is what's going to usher him in and maybe his child would be a powerful enough vessel because one of the other things we Saul season was that his vessels weren't holding up very well. Right. So, who knows? I, again, Supernatural this season has given us a lot of plot points. And we have another one now. We have Princess of Hell. And there is a lot going on. And I mean, you know, we were talking earlier about Lucifer being out of the cage and that being a plot point, and they kind of put a cap on that one. They haven't ruled it out as, I mean, I'm sure we'll still have to deal with Lucifer in later seasons. I mean, even this episode indicates that Crowley is, is that Lucifer is going to be a pain in the neck for Crowley going forward. But this season seems to be setting up a lot. It seems to be bringing up a lot of interesting plot points, and it seems to be creating a lot of plot for them to resolve over the course of the next couple of seasons. And if they keep doing that throughout the season, I mean, we are only 12 episodes in, and they've created a fair amount of plot points so far. So, who knows what's gonna happen in the end of this season? I'm still holding my fingers for our first prediction. Maybe we take out the Lucifer chunk, but I'm still really hoping that Brawley becomes a big bad guy again. Yeah,
2: I do too. I, d- I definitely do too because I want our prediction to come true because I think that would be the the best way to pay tribute to the original seasons of Supernatural while moving forward and finally wrapping it all up. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that's that's my thought on it. and I, and yeah, I do definitely think we will be seeing the rest of the Prince of Hell this season. And I think you're right. Maybe we don't even need Lucifer yet. Maybe Lucifer will be sprung later, or maybe he won't be at all. But I would find it kind of odd showing him in this episode if he wasn't going to come back the rest yeah. of the
3: season. Mm-hmm. Anyway,
2: that being said, guys. I think we got to call it, but we will be back next week to talk about this 13th episode of season 12 of Supernatural entitled Family Feud. But until then, take it away, Nico. All
1: right, guys, thanks again for your Supernatural review. Now I'm going to move into the Netflix, Amazon, and other non traditional TV networks streaming section. And this week, we're going to talk about Netflix's The Crown, a 10 episode series about Queen Elizabeth II. The Crown focuses on Queen Elizabeth II as a 25-year-old newlywed faced with the daunting prospect of leading the world's most famous monarchy while forging a relationship with legendary Prime Minister Sir Winston Churchill. The British Empire is in decline, the political world is in disarray, and a young woman takes the throne. A new era is dawning. Pierre Morgan's masterfully researched script reveals the Queen's private journey behind the public facade with daring frankness. Prepare to be welcomed into the coveted world of power and privilege and behind locked doors in Westminster and Buckingham palaces, the leaders of an empire awake. Netflix's The Crown is an amazing 10-episode series written by the same guy who wrote 2008's The Queen, Peter Morgan, and plans to do a series of these seasons covering Queen Elizabeth II's life from the start of her reign, which is the focus of this series, all the way up to the Queen film and possibly beyond to modern times, potentially bringing back Helen Mirren to play Elizabeth in the season after the focus of the film. At least that was the original plan, and with the critical success of this season, I doubt that plan has changed. As I mentioned, this series focuses on the time period of Elizabeth II's father's death, her coronation, and the transition into her rule as Queen. It is a riveting drama that invites the public into the private lives of Queen Elizabeth II, her royal family, and her political friend and at times adversary, World War II legend Winston Churchill. This series stars Claire Foy as Queen Elizabeth, Matt Smith as Philip Mountbatten, a former member of the Greek and Danish royal families who married Queen Elizabeth after World War II, and John Lithgow in the iconic role of Sir Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister who led. Great Britain during World War II before becoming Prime Minister again in 1951, the time period of this series. As I said, Claire Foy fronts the series as the 25-year-old Elizabeth Mountbatten Windsor, newlywed of Smith's charismatic Duke of Edinburgh, Philip Mountbatten, and begins with her father, King George VI, in failing health and Princess Elizabeth being called upon to take on more and more responsibility in the preparation of taking over as Queen. The series is brilliant and a breakout performance for Foy, previously best known for her role as Anne Boleyn in Wolf Hall or Lady Persephone in Upstairs, Downstairs, but the outstanding surprise of this series was Lithgow's amazing performance as Winston Churchill that completely blew my parents and I away. I've never been a huge fan of Lithgow's dramatic work, thinking of him mostly as a comedic actor, but he proved me wrong and delightfully so with this tour de force performance as Winston Churchill. Also surprising was the insight into mid-century British life and changes to the monarchy that Elizabeth has endured and fostered herself. One of the most shocking revelations, for me anyway, was the complete lack of basic education that the queen received as a child in basic subjects like math and science, yet she studied British constitutional law and four or more languages. As Elizabeth becomes queen, there is a scene in which she hires a tutor to teach her all the subjects she did not learn as a child so that she can understand the basics of what is being discussed and proposed to her. Prior to Elizabeth, the monarchs were not trained in the same way as most children and studied only the subjects that were deemed to be most necessary to their daily duties as king or queen but as we've seen with her grandchildren she has changed that and forced her future heirs to all attend university and get a well-rounded education just a little tidbit from the series that shows the amazing life she has had and the amazing detail put into telling her story i highly recommend this series to everyone but especially if you enjoyed helen mirren's the queen because it feels like that same film just earlier in elizabeth's life and as i've said the performances are spectacular and the feel of the series is just right to capture the 1950s Britain. You will not be disappointed spending the 10 hours watching this series. Go and watch it immediately. Again, this is The Crown on Netflix. Alright, with that, we're going to move into the closing. On next week's episode, we'll continue the Spring 2017 TV season with a review of Walking Dead, an episode of Star Wars Rebels, and Tim and Michael's review of Supernatural, and another streaming recommendation along with more news with Nico. Also, DC Nation continues with episodes of Supergirl Flash era and DC Legends of Tomorrow, but no Gotham, which is still on a three-month hiatus, so make sure to join us for that as well. Also, be sure to keep an eye out for Steve, Wu, Nikki, and the rest of the Marvelverse crew doing the Marvelverse podcast and their coverage of the Marvel Cinematic and Television Universes. But now, and for most of the season, we're going to roll
0: Dan's pre-recorded closing. Get at of Across the Airways podcast, network website, across again, that's acrosstheairways.com. You can check out all of our podcast shows, available as their own, get individual programs, get in the iTunes Store, Okay, Google Play store. Guys, for the podcast shows, Color our network. We have the DC Nation podcast, located at DC Nation dot across dot com. That's DC Nation dot across dot com, which reviews popular DC comics related TV shows and movies. There's also the Marvel Verse podcast, located at Marvel Verse podcast That's Marvel podcast dot com, which reviews Marvel comics related TV shows and movies. can we also have Throats our podcast dedicated to reviewing episodes of HBO's Game of Thrones, which is available at the website thronescast.acrosstheairways.com Again, that's thronescast.acrosstheairways.com In addition to these programs, you can listen to the original Across the Airways podcast, which is accessible at acrosstheairways.com, which reviews TV shows not related to superheroes core Game of Thrones, like The Walking Dead, Doctor Who, Star Wars Rebels, Supernatural, and more, including sitcoms such as The Big Bang Theory and The Muppets. Also, you can listen to Across the Airways, the DC Nation podcast, Thrones Cast the Game of Thrones podcast. Got the Marvelverse podcast. Got the Mixed Radio Station, code by Jack Stifel. Stitcher Radio. Or if you use Apple devices, download the Podcast Box app. Got if you're on a Windows or Android device, you can download our apps from the Amazon Marketplace. Got the Windows Marketplace. Got a regular Windows or Windows Phone app. Got for how you can contact us to give your own listener feedback. Got the TV shows re review. Provide suggestions on how we can improve your podcast listening experience. Or just want to say, do you like what we're doing? Gmail us at acrosstheairways.gmail.com. Again, that's across the airwaves at gmail.com Comment on our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter. Got across the airwaves. There's no thought in there, it's just across the airwaves. Join our circle. guy Google Plus. Go leave us a voicemail by calling 773 809 3363. get it 773 809 3363. Call someone sending us an email. Please mention which podcast show you're directing the message to. Give the subject line. Give you our sending us glitter feedback you want us to read. God the air. I would also recommend that you check out our YouTube page, which features trailers for upcoming movies, get television. Events. Go along with this content. The ATA YouTube channel is a great source for panels from past Comic Con. It will be a great resource to find videos related to the Comic Con taking place in San Diego this summer to go along with our Comic Con special.
1: Okay, so once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Nikki Amy Wukem, Joshua Mercrae, James Haefel, Steve Nostro, and Michael J. Petty, I'm Nico Reistek, and until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airwaves. See you guys, and thanks for joining us for another episode of ATA covering Walking Dead, Star Wars Rebels, Supernatural, and the new stream section see ya